Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books in German Studies, and I'm your host, Jill Messino. Today, I'll be speaking with Gerd Horton about his new book, Don't Need No Thought Control, Western Culture in East Germany and the Fall of the Berlin Wall, which was published by Berghahn Books in 2020. Welcome, Gerd. Thanks for having me, Jill. Dr. Horton is Professor Emeritus of History and Global Studies at Concordia University, Portland. His first book, Radio Goes to War, The Cultural Politics of Propaganda During World War II, was published by the University of California Press in 2002. His research focuses on socialism and post-socialism, media and cultural politics during the Cold War, and East Germany's engagements with the Global South. So, Gerd, can you tell our listeners how you came to write this book? I'd be happy to. Um, you know, this book, Jill, actually takes uh, takes its inspiration from uh, my undergraduate years at the University of Heidelberg. Uh, I uh, I grew up in West Germany, and frankly, I knew very little about East Germany. And uh, as a history student at at in, you know at the University of Heidelberg, I had been becoming very interested in what life was like in East Germany. And so I did a couple of day trips, which were very common. But then as an undergraduate, I was actually able to do an eight-day study trip to East Germany. And with a group of students, we, you know, traveled a number of, to a number of cities, met with young people, with functionaries, with uh, politicians, had some spare time. And it was a very intriguing experience. This was of mid-80s. But it was also a very perplexing and confusing experience because, you know, a lot of the propaganda perspective that I had on this horrible communist country uh, sort of fell apart. And I think the complexity of life in East Germany became much more apparent to me. I think what maybe stuck with me the most was, um, you know, we actually sort of organized a, a spontaneous dance party with East German young people that we met there. And we realized that we had so much in common. You know, we, we liked the same music. We knew uh, the same artists. And uh, it was just a, a really good time. So so I think I left a little befuddled and confused and curious. Um, and so this is sort of a late um, return, if you will, to that experience uh, and, and sort of trying to make some sense of it. You know, what was actually going on behind the facade of that, you know, sort of intimidating uh, East German communist regime uh, in the 1980s. And and then, of course, also, as many of us, uh, you know, surprised at the wall coming down. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, I was, as most people, very surprised by it and had not expected to see that in my own lifetime. So so that's sort of the the genesis, if you will, of, of this book. 
Yeah. And as an American, I certainly had a similar experience being fed this, uh, you know, hearty diet of, of propaganda about, you know, the evil empire, the Soviet Union being the evil empire and just this oppressive uh, lifestyle that uh, individuals in the Eastern Bloc uh, experience. So my first visit was similarly kind of enlightening. And it was as if I had to go through some kind of re-education process myself or deprogramming in a way, because, you know, I had been indoctrinated <laughs> in, in, in the West, in, in the mm-hmm. U.S. So I, I can relate to that, although I can't imagine having to feel that way about your own countrymen, right? It's, it's a little different. So um, yeah. And of course, it's, you know, I think it's probably fair to say that East Germans, at least before I met them and, 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 and visited there, you know, were more foreign to me than, than like Frenchmen or, you know, Belgian people, because I, I was told they were just so different from us. And, and yet when we met, it was, it didn't feel that way. Right. And of course, when you're younger, you're not always thinking about ideology or politics. I mean, in certain cases you are. But often you're just really focused on music and styles of dress, new ways of wearing your hair, um, the films you enjoy, hanging out with friends and such. So it's very natural to feel uh, this affinity to others your age, uh, despite the fact that they might live in uh, a a country next to you uh, that professes or follows a different ideology. Um, And so, you know, on that, I really appreciate your cultural and everyday life approach to this topic because... It enables us to appreciate how and why culture mattered and for whom. Um, And of course, it doesn't ignore the political. It just examines it from a different perspective. And kind of on that topic, I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit about the sources you use. So uh, what, what sources do you draw on in your analysis and what are some of the challenges associated with using them? Sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, to be fair, I, I use the combination of archival sources and secondary literature. Obviously, there's there's quite a bit published on this material. Uh, you know, I was particularly interested on the influence and impact that Western culture and consumer products had on East Germany in the 1970s and 1980s in particular. Uh, and so that was my research focus. Um most, although I visited many archives, including ones in the United States, uh, the most significant archives are certainly in, in Berlin. Uh, foremost among them is the, the National Archive in Berlin, Lichterfelde, which really has the, um, you know, the vast material of the former GDR and the documents and is a wonderful place to work at. Uh, but as you point out, and that's of course true with all documents and primary sources, uh, we have to be critical. We have to remember that everybody or most people, or maybe everybody, writes with a with a goal and with a purpose. Uh, and that is maybe even more so true in, the, in, in some of the socialist literature and documents. Um, you know, so I, I found it very interesting. Uh, it's sometimes hard to get at the core of things. And, you know, you have to read many, many pages before you sort of find the paragraph that maybe gives you the most information. You might be familiar with that process. You know, you read the first three pages of any documents and things seem to be going great and everybody's having a great time. And then you get this one paragraph that says, oh, you know, by the way, we maybe we could do something better here. And you realize that this is really sort of a tip off to something much bigger um, because at least in the official, you know, sort of communication, it's, uh, it's, it's generally 
quite glowing. Um, now, there are different documents, obviously, as we know, the, especially the ones from the Ministry for State Security, you know, commonly known as the Stasi, are, are actually quite direct and often blunt in their assessment. Um, I also took really advantage of the uh, research studies that they did at the Institute uh, for Youth Research, which was sort of a, um, a group of, of academics, really, who did serious research on what is going on with young people in particular, what do they like, uh, to what degree do they like Western music, Eastern music, you know, what do they read, what do they, how do they spend their free time. And so you get actually a, a great amount of very reliable information in those kinds of more academically, uh, you know, based research that was done behind the scenes, which of course was not published and often was quite embarrassing for the leadership. And so they kept it quite secret if they could. Um, so it was, it was very interesting, I found, you know, to, to wrestle with those documents, to try to recognize, you know, it's not unique to East Germany or socialist countries, but it might be particularly sort of laden with that kind of bias. Yeah, I mean, sometimes the state security documents can be tricky because uh, naturally, in some cases, um, the reports were fabricated or at least partially fabricated. Um, but when, you know, the Stasi was collecting information about the state of society of, you know, people's tastes, yeah, they're, they're more or less reflective because they're trying to gauge what is a threat to our legitimacy and how can we kind of tweak policy so that, you know, people will be satisfied enough with what we give them so they won't revolt. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, as you know, and that's sort of one of the threats uh, of my book. And I think I see it in, in many other uh, publications on, on, on not just East Germany, but Eastern Europe, you know, that the government was not as, uh, you know, sort of all, all omnipotent and all powerful as we often assumed. Uh, they had to, you know, what many people, including myself, called entered into a social contract with the population you know, which becomes particularly prominent, I think, in the 70s and 80s, uh, you know, in terms of providing people with an ever better living standard in, in return for, you know, uh, people going along with the political leadership. And, and um, so there was, there was quite a bit of tension and accommodation and concessions and back and forth that uh, I think is really at the heart of my study and which I found, um, you know, really intriguing. Yeah, and that gets me to my next question because your book is focused primarily on Erich Honecker's rules, so uh, you know his yeah, position, right? And so, why is he having to assume a different approach, right, than his uh, predecessor Ulbricht? Why, why uh, does he feel the need to do this? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So you know, Ulbricht, of course, was in power from the beginning of you know in forty nine when the GDR was established. Um, all the way until 71, so over 20 years. And, um, you know, and, I, and again, I think it, it, it was definitely the period of rebuilding in, in, in East Germany. Uh, as, as I think most people know, they had a very tough start. Obviously, Germany was absolutely devastated. In many ways, East Germany maybe even had a tougher start because, you know, there was no Marshall Plan that supported the rebuilding of, of East Germany the same way that that, that happened in West Germany. Uh, and I think when Honecker came to power, uh, you know, in, in 71, um, 
I mean, maybe two things happened. One, of course, is he really wanted to make his mark and he wanted to sort of establish a different path, you know, one that is sort of leading more and more into to what people have called consumer socialism, you know, really providing uh, benefits, material benefits to the population to, to um, you know, really speed up the, the, the building, the apartment building project. Uh, to provide more accommodations, more convenience. Um, and I think it was his way, A, of making his mark and d- distinguishing himself from Ulbricht. But I think it was also because, of course, by the early 70s, you know, especially East Germany had seen how West Germany had been transformed and was really um, materially very well off. And of course, West Germany was always the comparative barometer, if you will, for the for the East Germans and not the other East European countries. And so he was also responding, I think, to this demand saying, you know, can we can we do the same that capitalism seems to be able to do? Can we sort of compete with them toe to toe? Also, when it comes to, you know, material well-being and consumer consumption. And so Hanukkah was tempted and did uh, undertake this fairly bold uh, approach, which often is referred to as the main task, in which he really committed himself to this consumer socialism and really in in very real terms, improving the lives of um, average East Germans. And and to be fair, he was quite successful with it at first. but so that was, uh, I think, a lot of the impetus for the for the change in the early seventies. Um, that sort of, and and there was a new chapter. We t- we we were turning a new page, and we can compete with the West and with capitalism, even when it comes to the area of you know consumption and consumer products and standard of living, uh, those kinds of things. Yeah, and for many, that was really important, especially for the younger generation, right, that was coming of age, and they saw that people in the West enjoyed a superior lifestyle, especially once Hanukkah allowed TV reception from the West, right, from from West Germany. So I was wondering if you could talk, because one of the impressive things about this study is it's also a generational study. You look at how different generations respond to the main task and the kind of consumer initiatives and cultural initiatives uh, promoted by the state. So can you tell us why generations matter uh, in terms of understanding the legitimacy of state socialism and the GDR? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's absolutely critical. Um, you know, even though it wasn't to the same degree as it was in the West, I mean, you know, the 60s had a profound impact on, I think, all of East Germany. And again, maybe uh, even a little bit more on on. Uh, on Eastern Europe and a little more on East Germany because it was right on the border. Um, yeah, and young people were definitely uh, enthralled by what they saw, uh, by what they heard, um, by the culture, by the lifestyle. And, you know, in, in the literature, again, uh, historians of East Germany talk about these three generations, you know, the, the first generation who sort of founded the state, you know, the founder generation, generally born in the 20s and 30s. Um, The second generation, you know, sort of their kids, maybe born in the 40s and 50s, uh, they are often referred to as as the integrated uh, generation, you know, the ones who are still willing to carry forth the the torch of socialism. 
And then really this break with this, uh, you know, the generation born in the 60s and 70s, um, you know, and again, historians refer to them as the unintegrated generation. Um, and I think it is, it is important to recognize that this was not a monolithic country uh, in many ways. And, uh, you know, by regions, by uh, classes, by, you know, there were, it's not the, the uniform socialist society that we often imagine or falsely imagine. Um, and generationally, uh, the same is true. I mean, that third generation and then maybe even more so the generation that was born in the 1980s, um, you know, were really no longer as invested in the socialist project. And um, the West uh, and Western culture, especially, and especially the culture of the 60s, the music, you know, the hair, the, the, the non-conformist attitudes and, and fashions, they all made their way into the East and um, and profoundly reshaped, I think, that generation and and uh, made it very difficult for uh, the leadership to sort of keep in control of the future and especially in, in finding a generation willing to sort of, you know, carry forth um, the torch uh, into the 21st century. Yeah, and certainly younger people, so teens and people in their early 20s, right? If they're unsatisfied with the system and they don't see any kind of way forward or out, they're not going to have children. They're not going to make a life for themselves like their parents had. And so they are in a situation where they can take risks. So that's why you have a lot of them mobilizing. Absolutely. And and as we said earlier, and as you alluded to as well, uh, you know, they... The Honecker and his, you know, his new approach in the early 70s also, it also came with a cultural opening. So, for example, for East Germany, that meant that I think it was 1974 that that West German television, which was secretly watched by a great number of people prior to that, was now, you know, sort of condoned. Uh, people were allowed to watch West German television uh, we can talk, talk can talk more about you know the inter shops, which were basically luxury stores that carried Western products, uh, became uh, open to the East German public, um, and then of course you know music was everywhere, which uh, you know radio radio stations were the hardest to control from an East German perspective, because the jamming in the seventies just didn't work anymore. There were too many sources of Western music in addition to you know, the Voice of America and Radio Free Europe. And, uh, you know, so it, it, it was, I think, a decision born both in necessity and maybe with, with a wish to sort of still hold on to the young people, to open up, you know, sort of the culture a little bit. Um, but like you say, yeah, it was for many, for many of the very young, of the younger people, uh, you know, the constant curtailment and the constant sort of um, advice of how they had to live their lives was just no longer satisfactory or, uh, you know, really even feasible. And, and that became an ever larger problem. Again, not new in the 70s. Obviously, that is happening already in the 50s and 60s, you know, when rock and roll and, and, and other things make their way across the Iron Curtain, but it's becoming an ever-increasing challenge uh, to the leadership, uh, how, to, how to sort of deal with those, um, you know, enemy forces uh, as they perceive them. 
Yeah, it reminded me of some of the other concessions, right? Nude sunbathing, um, which was illegal during the early years of the GDR, and then it was finally legalized, and then the state even begins promoting it. They are putting out magazines about it. And so kind of these concessions in order to, to hold on to legitimacy and seem kind of progressive. And I think, yeah, it's just fascinating. Um, uh, you, you find these surprises when you, you dig deep into these sources. Okay, I'd like to move on to the discussion of the chapters now. Sure. And in chapter one, uh, you examine media campaigns uh, surrounding the war in Vietnam. And so how does the GDR's support of the North, North Vietnam, uh, help to shore up its legitimacy at home? Yeah, uh, great question. I mean, I, that was maybe one of the biggest surprises and also still maybe one of the more controversial uh, aspects of my study. Um, but I'm fairly convinced that the the East German government, you know, through its early support of North Vietnam, um, actually gained some legitimacy with its population as well as internationally. Uh, and, and I think that had to do with the general skepticism that people had, you know, I mean, as, as you know, you know, supposedly the Berlin Wall was built in the early 60s to keep out the imperialist forces and not, you know, as we know, to keep their own people in. So, they, you know, they had come up, they had several propaganda strategies that were often not believed by their own people. You know, they just, they just didn't take. But, but interestingly enough, you know, on the Vietnam War, if you will, the, the East Germany turned out to be on the right side of history, so to speak, because even though the population initially was very reluctant to embrace these solidarity campaigns, you know, for North Vietnam, um, because, they, you know, there had been any number of these campaigns. You know, as the war progressed, of course, as we know with Vietnam, and especially when that turning point that happened in 1968, 1969, and, you know, the American war was just going completely sideways and becoming ever more horrific. You know, the world was clearly turning against the West and especially against the United States. Um, East Germany, as I said earlier, you know, proved to be on the right side of history. And in fact, uh, you know, the West German and Western media increasingly agreed with their assessment, you know. Uh, so, so that was one thing which uh, is, did not generally happen. Um, they also, you know, then became very involved in the international campaign to stop the war, especially, uh, you know, some people might be familiar with, uh, with uh, you know, the Swedish government and its open opposition to the Vietnam War and holding anti-war conferences in the late 60s and early 70s, East Germany became um, not only an invited member, but ultimately was invited to join the council of that uh, sort of organization. Uh, so internationally, they gained quite a bit of clout and uh, respect, I would say. And then domestically as well, especially in the late uh, 60s and then early 70s, as sort of North Vietnam was being cheered on by greater numbers of people uh, worldwide, really, uh, you know, you also saw a real genuine sort of uptick in solidarity campaigns domestically so that workers would spend some maybe extra time, overtime to produce certain products that were then shipped to, to North Vietnam. Uh, kids were encouraged, of course, to, to collect scrap metal. And, and so you had sort of this broad-based effort, which of course was organized by the government, 
but I think there's really good evidence that these campaigns were more uh, genuinely uh, and authentically supported uh, by the population and reduced the skepticism that, uh, you know, I think a majority of people generally had about anything the government did, especially sort of in terms of these solidarity campaigns for other countries. Yeah, I mean, I found this in, in Romania to a lesser extent, but I mean, you see it also in Hungary, you see it in Poland, you see it in Yugoslavia, the support among young people, but also others, workers uh, for the North. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they were on the right side of history, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then the fact that you had individuals throughout the globe supporting the North, right? Or at least Absolutely. criticizing operations um, in, in South Vietnam and, of course, the American uh, in, invasion and, 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 you know, responsibility uh, for so much carnage uh, that they were on the right side. They were on the humane side of mm-hmm. history. So, so it only makes sense that it would um, be uh, attractive, um, you know, would become a, so- a source of support by ordinary individuals. So they wouldn't need to be mobilized. Yeah. And I, you know, I will say, of course, as any, any of these, you know, that, that didn't mean everybody supported it. I mean, you know, the, again, the Stasi kept a fairly close record on, on the various districts and what was happening. And, um, you know, this was not uniformly the case, um, but you could certainly see the uptick, uh, in, 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 in the support. Um, and, uh, but also likewise, I guess you could also say that when the uh, East German government tried to milk this sort of beyond 73 and 74 and 75, you know, uh, you know, when they tried to rename any number of schools, you know, and, and then for, for, for in, in the name of this effort, you could also see that people were definitely beginning to taper off and they, their interest was subsiding again. So, so it had a, a certain shelf life, but I think from, especially from, 68 to 73 it was a winning strategy um uh, for the for the east german government and they also i mean this was particularly important because they could use it both against the united states but also against west germany because west germany of course was maybe uh, was was an, an ally of the united states and even though they didn't provide military support uh they were nevertheless um you know complicit in what the United States did um, in, in, in Vietnam. Right. And then as soon as the shelf life of the war in Vietnam expires, you have another major event uh, that serves to shore up support for the GDR, uh, namely the 1972 Olympics, which were held in Munich, West Germany. So can you tell us a bit about how uh, the Olympics became a basis for promoting the legitimacy of uh, state socialism. Absolutely, yes. That was, I think, again, uh, you know, the sports arena in general um, was, a, especially in the 70s, a, a, a real bright spot for the East German government. Uh, you know, we could talk a lot about the previous history, you know, the, the German, how the German nation was re- re- uh, represented in, in at the Olympics, you know, but the short story is basically that starting in the late 60s again, the uh, International Olympic Committee insisted that East Germany was represented as an independent, independent sovereign country at the Olympics. And that, of course, was contrary to what, what West Germany tried to do politically, which was to keep East Germany isolated. 
Uh, and this all, re all really came to a head in the 1972 Olympics because, you know, the International Olympic Com Committee in 1966 um, awarded Munich, West Germany, Munich, the, the Olympics, but they tied to it a very important condition, which was that Germany, West Germany had to allow East Germany to participate as a sovereign, independent nation with its own flag and its own anthem. And so that basically made it that Munich became such a, a, a you know, both an athletic competition, but also political competition between the two Germanys, you know, because the East German, for example, Minister for Sports said, well, they... West Germans might might host the Olympic Games, but we are going to take we're going to beat them uh, in the arenas, and we're going to take more medals than the West Germans will, and they did, and so it became um, definitely sort of a a success story uh, because East Germany, you know, with a population of not even twenty million people, uh, placed third at the nineteen seventy two Munich uh, Games. Uh, right behind, you know, the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, in ahead of West Germany, which placed fourth in terms of medal points or count, and then they even topped that in this in the '76 Olympics, you know, in Montreal, where they actually uh, placed second, uh, and uh, you know, did even better than they had done in in the '72 Olympics, uh, and it really put East Germany on a map. Uh, I think for many people who might have looked at this as sort of a, a rump or illegitimate state. Um, and again, we could, of course, get into the, the you know, all this state-sponsored doping that was at least partially uh, behind this. But it, there's no question that sports, the sports arena was seen by the East German government as a place where they could fight for legitimacy and make a mark for themselves. And, um, and they did. Uh, both, especially in 72 and 76. And so it was part of this, you know, at least temporary uh, rise of legitimacy. Um, I think it's Mar Mary Fulbrook who has said that, especially between 71 and 76, you know, so there was this sweet spot maybe in East German history where the people had maybe the most um, or the least reservation about the state government. And I, I definitely find the same in my research. I think that, that those first five years of the Hanukkah uh, administration and leadership uh, were probably one of the, the high points of, of you know, those of the uh, legitimacy uh, of, the, of the East German government in the eyes of its own people. Well, and this legitimacy is, uh, you know, the, the achievements in the Olympics is also about nationalism, right? It's about national pride, and it's a nationalism um, that is effectively mobilized, unlike other forms of nationalism, right? Definitely. And we know that's important for other, uh, you know, socialist regimes during this period as well. So, uh, mm. yeah, it, it's sometimes the basis for them to sustain their legitimacy, and okay. I think also, if I may just say, you know, we, we need to remember that this came at a time, you know, when the when the West, of course, looked really vulnerable. You know, you, you had the United States, uh, you know, res, I mean, you know, under the cloud of the civil rights movement, the racism, the Vietnam War, the Nixon administration and Watergate and, you know, any number of crises. Then you got the oil shocks and the economic crisis of the 70s and you know, it was one of those uh, moments, I think, uh, especially in hindsight, where 
uh, were clearly, you know, the Soviet model looked um, a little bit more appealing, especially when you saw all the all the troubles um, and all the ills that were going on on the other side of the Iron Curtain. Yeah, I think those uh, diverse contextual factors are really important because it wasn't just about the Olympics. It's about all these other aspects. And yeah, mm-hmm. is, is the West losing out here? <laughs> they're not just <laughs> losing the Olympics. They're losing, you know, the economic battle. They're losing um, the civil rights battle. Uh, it's mm-hmm. Okay, let's move on to chapter two now where you examine film and in particular the regimes, so the GDR regime's policy towards Western film, which underwent major transformation. And you refer to this uh, as a cultural capitulation by the GDR. So, so what did this cultural capitulation involve? Why was it necessary? Why did it happen? Yeah. Uh, and again, I, I think, you know, this was sort of one of the surprises uh, when I actually traveled, and this, of course, was in the 80s uh, in East Germany. Um, you know, I was I was really, again, confused that I, I saw, you know, posters for the same kind of movies, you know, that had sort of been running in the West, you know, and, and film imports. Uh, you know, of course, this was true for music and films also, but uh, so, so I think what is important to remember are a couple of things, which is that you know the, the cultural Cold War, of course, ran parallel to the political Cold War, um, and uh, in terms of imports of Western films into East Germany and other parts of of Eastern Europe, actually, you know, again, this is nothing new in the nineteen seventies or eighties. This had already happened in the sixties. As part of its socialist cultural policy, uh, East Germany sort of wanted to give its viewers sort of a broad picture of what world cinema looked like. Um, But of course, as we can imagine, uh, they chose Western imports uh, very carefully and often, of course, in a way that sort of uh, shed a negative light on on capitalism and Western cultures. Um, and, and that trend certainly continued in the 1970s. So when we look at, you know, the films of the 1970s, for example, uh, you know, films that were popular were films like All the President's Men, you know, which was a film about Watergate and, and, and the political scandals in the United States. Um, you know, Chinatown was another popular film in, in, in East Germany or by the, especially for the East German government, because again, it showed the you know, the, the economic corruption and the greed that is sort of so often part of the uh, the American landscape. Um, and so these films of the new Hollywood, as it was called, these critical, social, critical economic, political and social uh, uh, viewpoints were generally uh, films they liked to import in the 1970s. Um, and they did. Um but what eventually happens, and again, here we need to bring in another aspect, which is sort of the financial indebtedness that is taking place in the 1970s, which is that the, the consumer socialism that Honecker initiated in the 1970s, in many ways, ultimately bankrupted the regime. Uh, and this does not become as apparent in the 70s yet, although by the late 70s, uh, I think there's statistics that show that East Germany were, had 10 times uh, the, the, the debt uh, by the late 70s that it had by the early 70s because so much of what it had done to improve the material well-being of its people 
had been done on credit card. So, you know, they, they really got into deep financial trouble. Uh, something some people refer to as the debt trap, uh, the debt trap, the trap of, of East Germany. Uh, they were just taking on way too much, um, you know, um, red ink. And films in, in, in important ways are, uh, so show this, the film industry, you know, by the late 70s, especially by the early 1980s, what I realized was that the kinds of films that the East German government allows into, um, into its country is beginning to change. You know, while in the early 70s, you know, ideological um, preferences still play a major role, you know, for example, in the early 70s, there is no John Wayne, John Wayne film. There are very few Western films, traditional Western films. You know, by the early 80s and then especially by the mid 80s, it really becomes ever more important uh, of how much revenue an import film will, will produce for the government. Uh, and so what is happening is not just that they're allowing Western films into the country, which, of course, have an appeal in and of themselves. But they're also increasingly becoming dependent on what they call the million viewer films, you know, the films that will bring large audiences in the, in the studios. Um, and so, you know, a film like Jaws, which would have been previously maybe not aired in, in East Germany, now becomes available and is a big hit. Uh, you know, by the mid-1980s, uh, science fiction films were usually not shown in East Germany, but E.T. Uh, becomes a massive blockbuster movie in, in East Germany. Um, and, you know, by the mid to late 80s, films even like um, Dirty Dancing, uh, you know, become the most watched films uh, in East Germany. So, so what we see over time, and especially, you know, from the early 70s to the late 80s, is that the East German government really loses control of its of its vision of a socialist culture, uh, and a lot of this is driven by economic necessity. In order to, for example, pay for its own film and its own filmmaking, uh, and unfortunately, films that are often not very popular with their own audiences. I think it's by the mid seventies that only only about twenty percent of them. Uh, you know, sort of make back the money that they cost to make. So the film industry and the officials in the film industry have become ever more dependent on actually having these blockbuster films, Western import blockbuster films, that will make up for the revenue uh, in order to finance and keep afloat the movie industry in East Germany itself. Uh, so it's kind of a fascinating and you know, pretty uh, fateful turn of events that um, indeed leads to what I, I then refer to as sort of a cultural capitulation uh, because they are no longer following their own vision and priorities. They're, they're looking for revenue uh, and desperately, desperately need it. Right. So what you see in culture, at least in the realm of film, does not, uh, is not in line with uh, socialist ideology but it's appealing to viewers, so Absolutely. it helps to sustain legitimacy, right? Yes, indeed. And then that again, uh, and, you know, as we said earlier, I mean, that's why, why I sort of referred to the, these, these ongoing accommodations uh, that, the, that the socialist government makes. Uh, and I call it, you know, it's, it, it, so it participates in its own disempowerment in that way. 
is that you know it it has to give more and more inches uh, along this process. It has to make more and more concessions that it doesn't want to do, but it need it, it realizes that it has to do to just at least tangentially hold on to its own population to keep you know people coming to the cinemas. In this case, uh, people are also willing to pay full price for a one of these blockbuster films. Whereas, you know, socialist films are often uh, reduced, uh, have to reduce ticket prices. Uh, so it becomes, yeah, this ongoing sort of, um, you know, sort of trying to, to, to stay in touch uh, with where the people are. And, uh, you know, in the process, you know, uh, giving more and more. Uh, and it's a very slow and gradual process. And that's why you have to look at it over time and certainly over decades. Uh, you know, but if you look specifically, you know, from the early 70s to the late 80s, um, the trajectory is very clear. Uh, the, the, they lose control of their own agenda, as you say, of their own vision, of their own priorities, and not only have to allow more Western culture and consumer products eventually in, into their country, but are actually becoming financially dependent on these imports for their own survival. And are these films, these Western films, um, you're going to see them mainly screened, I'm guessing, in urban areas, so smaller towns are not going to, they're not going to be as accessible or? Yeah, I think that's that's generally the case. You know, I mean, obviously they, there was a, a massive, uh, you know, urban preferencing in all of this when it comes to these imports because that's where usually trouble arose. That's where... Obviously, the concentrations of people are, um, and so yeah, they, they. But I mean, they might eventually make their way also into more remote areas. Uh, you know, generally speaking, uh, East Germany got these imports with a two or three year delay, um, and bought the rights to show them for a two to three year period. Uh, so I think initially, you know, so for example, in, in the case of Chinatown, it was made in the United States in 74. It came to East German uh, screens by 77. Uh, and, you know, by the last years of the of the contract where they still had the lease on the film, it might also make its way into the countryside. So it was this this delayed process, if you will, uh, that, that sort of, at least in those days before we had our instantaneous culture and, 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 and relaying of information like today, uh, you know, was, was fairly typical. It certainly relates to my experience in West Germany. I grew up in a, in a very, um, you know, not an urban area, and it, it always took a little longer for certain cultural influences to make their way, uh, you know, to, to, to those regions. Right. Unless you had a VCR or something. Yeah. Um, and that's a whole nother conversation. Um, and I don't, I want to actually get onto television now. So what happens with television in the GDR and how do the regime's policies change with respect to television? You know, maybe we can compare that as well with film. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, a, it's sort of a, a similar trajectory and it's, it's of course even more urgent, you know, um, I think we had mentioned earlier that uh, German uh, television Channels and viewing uh, was condoned in 73, 74 in, in East Germany and had been practiced well before then, uh, and it's to be remembered. Um, you know, again, West German 
television signals could be received in the vast majority uh, of, of, of East Germany. Um, there was, you know, this famous area around Dresden in the eastern part of, of East Germany, which became known as the, the, the Valley of the Clueless because, you know, they could not receive Western television signals. And so they were kind of excluded from this um, from these nightly excursions into the West um, and is a whole topic to itself. But, but yeah, basically, I mean, starting by the mid seventies, um, East and West German television were in direct daily nightly competition with each other, uh, which again, put a lot of pressure on, on East German, um, you know, officials because West Germany was wealthier. It had more resources. It had, uh, a greater number of channels. Its um, its stations broadcast further than the eastern channels did, and so uh, you know it was always a, an, an asymmetrical competition. You know where the East German government had the shorter the shorter end of the stick, um, and what that of course meant, you know, as you can imagine, if people are allowed to watch anything they want by the mid seventies. You know, a lot of uh, West German television, of course, has imports from the United States, from from Great Britain and from other Western countries. Um, You know, they have their own shows that compete now with the with the East German um, television shows and programming. Uh, And it's it's terribly difficult, again, especially because the technological you know, difficulty of East Germany to keep up with all the new developments, for example, even color television was a real challenge uh, for them. Um, And so you see more and more uh, in its own ways that East German television and producers created shows that looked uh, more and more like Western shows, you know, So, so... uh, and some of them actually were quite successful. And some of them, again, especially in the 70s, early 70s, were also quite, uh, you know, so still along the lines of a socialist ideology. So, so for example, uh, you know, one show that I, I highlight in my book is called, you know, Our Dear Fellows, Fellow Men, um, which was a very almost hip, you could say, um, colorful uh, family series that in many ways showed a, um, you know, a, had, had a main character who was somewhat skeptical of the East German government. She didn't believe much in socialism in many ways. Uh, but then what we see th- during these episodes and during these shows was that, you know, every step of the way, she sort of got a little bit closer to supporting the socialist government. And uh, I, I especially watched one episode in which a, you know, West German relative came to visit. And uh, it was very interesting because, um, you know, while she was at, at least uncertain of how to, you know, talk with her West German relative, who, of course, they were always, you know, better dressed and maybe more sophisticated appealing. Uh, but she realized by the end of the show that she was had the confidence to speak up for her own country, for her own system, and actually sort of... Um, you know, laid bare maybe some of the superficialities of, of a West German visitor. Uh, and so it was a an interesting show in that it sort of dealt in that gray area of people doubting their own government, but then also sort of increasingly sort of came maybe to see some of its advantages. Um, 
Uh, and, 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 you know, other shows like it. I mean, retired people are always busy in the late 60s, 70s was a similar show. It was about a retired couple. Uh, very funny, uh, very entertaining. Uh, it was a three generational show. And so they often had their daughter with their kids uh, in their apartment. Uh, and they were well-known actors, actor and actress in, in East Germany. And, um, you know, they sort of, sort of showed in a very lighthearted way, uh, you know, a focus on community and neighbors and pitching in and helping each other out. And, um, you know, and always with a, with a sort of dose of humor. Um, it was, it was very popular. Um, so, so I do want to highlight that they were very successful East German shows uh, at the same time uh, as this competition was ratcheting up. And obviously, East German viewers increasingly sort of decided which show they wanted to watch on a given evening at a given time. Um, and, and so they were still appealing socialist alternatives. Uh, but it's fair to say that the... Um, the scale was tipping more and more in favor of Western shows, Western programming, some of them also imports that West German television showed on its, uh, on its channels. Uh, and so it became a, a more and more difficult uh, competition for, uh, again, especially East German uh, television producers and, and officials. Yeah, the shows that were produced by the government, the GDR government, then had to be less political, right? So there were these kind of socialist undertones, right, of promoting community and and cooperation, but they couldn't be as ideological as the exactly. ones before because no one would have watched them. Exactly. And, and this happens in Czechoslovakia as well, right? So exactly, and it, it, it's sort of a you know, and, and 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 they actually again, you see actually that in the sources quite well. They they're becoming ever more you know sort of outspoken about the fact that we can't do, uh, even though they kept, of course, some of the, the standard bearers, if you will, of, of political reporting, uh, but they were becoming quite aware that when, uh, you know, I think, I forget that it was, I think it was Tuesday nights and Thursday nights that were heavy on political shows in the in East Germany, and they just saw a massive drop-off in viewership, <laughs> you know, so there was almost this clear correlation to Okay, when the government brought in a, a, a political show, you know, people were definitely tuning out en masse and, and switching over to the West, you know, for the evening or for at least for, for the hour so that the, that political show was on. And then they are very outspoken. I mean, they, they, they scale back the political, political broadcasts more and more in the 70s and then particularly in the 80s, uh, realized that this is no way to uh, win or keep or win an audience, uh, you know, to watch, to watch their programming. Yeah, quite a punch in the gut for the, the government. Absolutely. Um, okay, so let's move on to Chapter 4, which examines music and youth radio. And here you argue that the influence of Western popular music posed the most significant and difficult challenge uh, mm-hmm. to the Eastern Bloc, uh, East Germany included. So so why was this the case? Yeah, I think we already alluded it to, to it a little bit earlier. Uh, you know, it's just that... Um, you know, tell to 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 control film is relative is is easier because you can decide to import a film or not import a film. You know, television it becomes a little more difficult. It becomes actually very much more difficult. Uh, but for radio, I think the problem became that it was absolutely impossible by the seventies to control. 
you know, the radio waves from coming in, uh, you know, crossing over. And, and, you know, you had, I mean, what, probably a dozen radio stations that were easily received from West Germany in the East. You had Austrian radio stations. You had, again, the Voice of America and Radio Free Europe. Uh, in Berlin, you had a very popular radio station called um, Radio in the American Sector, uh, RIAS, that was very popular with East German audiences, young audiences in particular. So, you know, it, it was just impossible. And again, we see the same um, kind of dance that is happening um, you know, they are trying to keep, um, you know, some control over it. So for a long time, for example, groups like ACDC or Black Sabbath would not be played on, 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 on East German radio because they just did not approve of it. Or, you know, punk music was not, a, not approved. Um, even earlier, you know, I mean, even the Rolling Stones in the 70s were often uh, prohibited from being played. But you know, again, it was becoming increasingly easy uh, for East German, um, especially young people and, you know, other people as well, uh, other generations, to listen to alternative music sources, especially those coming from the West or being broadcast um, on shortwave. Um, and so, you know, this, uh, you know, probably more even so than, than film and television uh, it was a constant battle of how can we still sort of make, uh, keep, hold on, especially to the young people who by, you know, how by the really the 70s, late 70s, becoming so disaffected uh, with the government and were really uh, tuning out. Um, and so, you know, they did the same they did in the other two areas. You know, they tried to keep um, listeners loyal they loosened the cultural restrictions. They played um, programming that they had not allowed before, uh, you know. And this, of course, was still the, the, the time of, of tape of the tape era. They they played uh, songs specifically so young people could record them onto a tape and then, you know, sort of uh, play whenever they wanted to. Um, and 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 so those kinds of concessions. Um, again, became commonplace, uh, and they, um, you know, they tried their best to sort of um, negotiate, uh, to bargain, uh, and, but it was, it was difficult. Um, in the 70s, again, there are East German groups, and I listened to some of them myself, um, you know, like City and, and Pudis and, and Karat, um, rock bands, East German rock bands um, that were very popular, not just in East Germany, but they, their music was definitely playing on West German radio stations. They, they toured internationally. Um, they had freedoms that, uh, you know, very few artists had in, in, in East Germany. Um, and so there was this moment again in the 70s where they had an authentic youth culture, you know, that ran parallel, of course, to Western culture, Western music culture, um, that was very popular and had a large following. Um, but, you know, especially in the later 70s, and here the Biermann um, episode, you know, this was a, a, a folk singer, um, Wolf Biermann, who was expatriated basically in 1976 from East Germany for singing, uh, you know, playing very songs critical 
uh, of the government and had for a long time done so. He was on a concert in in, in West Germany, uh, and when he wanted to return to East Germany, he was not allowed back. Um, and there was a large scale protest on the part of the autistic community in East Germany, uh, but the government wouldn't budge. And in fact, um, you know, after seventy six, if anything, they they really clamped down on on sort of critical voices from. Uh, the music industry in particular. And so the f- little freedom or the freedom that, um, you know, the best known artists and groups in East Germany had had uh, began to increasingly evaporate. Of course, you know, they, some of them stuck around, but they had to, again, in, the, in this case, they had to make uh, ever greater concessions in terms of what they were allowed to do. And so it became a very deflating experience. And uh, certainly the audiences, the young people, uh, you know, uh, were turned off by it. Uh, and, and it was sort of a, a significant turning, of, even further turning away, uh, you know, from, from, from sort of socialist groups and socialist music. Yeah, I was actually going to ask about uh, the the subcultures because you talk about the musical subcultures and mm-hmm. the risks associated with being a part of a, a group that was not accepted by the government. So if you were in one of these bands, uh, what, what mm-hmm. would happen to you? Well, it depended if you were not, you know, if you were not willing to play the game, if you were willing, if you if you were uh, once you were on the list of enemies by the government, they pretty much ground you down you know they 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 made your life impossible they you know uh criminalized behavior that was non-conformist and that is actually by the way not just true for uh, active musicians but for the fan base as well i mean there was massive fan base for some of these pro for the for some of these groups uh and they sort of played this cat and mouse game with uh with the officials because you know, concerts would be canceled. Um, you know, m- musicians would be penalized and not get travel permissions. And and so, oftentimes, what happened is that these popular groups that still existed would have these almost uh, instantaneous word of mouth kind of concerts, and they would have to go deep into the countryside, as far away of of, of major, you know security forces as they could and 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 their fans would hear about it and travel to those locations and they would have sort of this this pop-up concert if you will uh before they were dispersed um and this came, became sort of a, a, a you know a, a whack-a-mole game kind of um where they uh you know the music industry st- tried to stay nimble but you know at the same time of course uh it, it was very very depressing and, and frustrating and you know, more and more uh, musical talent either, um, you know, left the GDR or was um, expelled uh, or curtailed in other ways. And and so, you know, it was reflective of a, of a situation, as you said, where, you know, non-con- non-conformist behavior, like, you know, if you had long hair and, and were non-conformist in, in, in the West, you could re-enter public life or even professional life. Uh, in East Germany, those kinds of things carried lifelong consequences. Uh, you know, it cut you off from educational opportunities. The official government made your life difficult uh, and sometimes criminalized this behavior. Uh, and so it was not as easy a choice as in the West. You know, you couldn't just sort of 
uh, skip out of it and get back into your, your you know, sort of a, a normal, maybe professional life uh, because it it really cut off any any of those avenues. Um, and I think that that uh, was a real a disservice the government did to itself because many of these young people were not necessarily political enemies, but because of their treatment, they were often becoming more disenchanted for sure, and sometimes also more politically alienated uh, from from the government than was probably necessary. Yeah, I was just thinking that exact thing, like uh, the the government alienated them more than they needed to, and it might have behooved them to actually accommodate them to a certain extent. It, it seems like you know, in Poland, there was a little more accommodation uh, with respect to, you know, musical concerts, and they would have these large concerts with bands from the West as well, but also local uh, bands. And, and it was just kind of like, okay, this is this is your carnival, this is your safety valve, we're going to let you enjoy this. Uh, so then you kind of have this illusion of freedom, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think I think it goes back to, you know, I, I we're talking about subcultures, you know, I, I, I uh, I talk about it in the chapter on the on the alternative music culture and subcultures. You know, in I think in England, the the, the slogan of the punk movement of the nineteen eighties was, uh, you know, no future. They didn't see a future for themselves in a capitalist system. Uh, and the East German youth uh, adopted the slogan of too much future, uh, meaning, you know, your life was basically already uh, laid out for you. Uh, it was curtailed. It was circumscribed. It was prescribed. Um, you know, there was a surveillance setting in, in in place that kept you in line. And if you, you know, sort of went out of line, or especially if you be adopted this nonconformist behavior, you were kind of kneecapped. And 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 really, you know, your life was um, uh, took a turn, uh, a significant turn, and a lifelong turn. Um, you know, for the worse after that. Yeah, it's really sad if we think about that, um, you know, just the stakes involved in wanting to express yourself creatively. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to chapter five now, where you examine sure. consumption practices um, and you explore the relationship between consumer goods and state legitimacy. And obviously those two things were very tightly intertwined. So how does access to goods, uh, consumer goods, change over the course of socialist rule? How and why does this happen? Yeah, I think this is a real critical point. And, um, you know, I, I think I wasn't quite aware of the degree. Uh, again, my visit there exposed me, you know, to to obviously some of the um, some of the unevenness. I mean, the, 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 the gist of the matter is that I think East Germany basically developed a three tiered consumption uh, society over the course of the 70s and 80s in particular. Um, you know, and that and that, of course, goes really counter to the the premise and the vision of an egalitarian, you know, system in which we're all in it together and we're fighting for each other. Uh, and I think what is happening in the '70s, especially, and then into the '80s, even more pronounced, is that the um, the differences of what people can afford and how they live their life become very apparent. Uh, because, you know, just so everybody knows, I mean, the, in, in East Germany, you had a, a basic um, governmental run uh, retail chain. It was called the HO, uh, you know, the trading organization. Uh, and that's, you know, where many people purchase their, their most common goods. 
But then you had a second layer of shops. Uh, they were called exquisite shops or, or delicate shops where you could buy products that were of higher quality, um, either higher quality produced within East Germany or Eastern Europe, or but also sometimes supplemented with products that came from the West. And um, the important part to know is that if you bought, let's say, your cheese in a in a delicat store and, and not in the HO store, you would pay like three times as much, let's say, uh, for a higher quality product if you could afford to do so. Uh, and then again, in 74, I think it is when East Germany allows yet another um, set of consumption venues. They're called the intershops. Um, up until sort of early 1970s, these were really shops that were reserved for Western tourists, where they could basically buy Western products duty-free. And the East German government made a profit, and the East, you know, West German or West European visitor made, you know, could buy something more inexpensively. Uh, by 74, they were open to the East German population, many of whom, after all, had relatives in the West who sent them some money, some of whom even had maybe inherited some money from a property that they shared with siblings who ended in, uh, lived in the West. So there were actually um, you know, East Germans who had access to West German currency. Uh, and this last, this highest, this elite sort of a chain of, of, of retail stores, the intershops, Basic, basically carried exclusively West, West European, uh, Western imports like Levi's jeans, like American or Scottish whiskey uh, or what have you. And if you had, but you could only purchase it with Western currency. Uh, so you could not use your own East German marks and buy in an intershop. You had to have access to West German currency and so, you know, if you had relatives in the West, that was great. You could every once in a while maybe participate in this. Uh, of course, as you can imagine, there was also a very lucrative um, black market where you could exchange your East German marks against for West German marks. Uh, they were supposed to be on equal footing, according to the East German government. Uh, but even when I was there, I think, um, you know, I think they were already... An East German mark or a West German mark was five times, uh, you know, what a West East German mark was. So if you went on the black market, people will give you five East German uh, notes or, or coins for a for for a West German mark. And so and so that uh, process. And again, a lot of this was carried out because the East German government was running up a greater and greater. Uh, debt by the 70s. And if they wanted to purchase goods that they needed for their production and for their machinery from the West, the West only accepted Western currency for these purchases. So they had to produce internal revenues, uh, Western currency that allowed them to make necessary purchases, which they needed to keep some of their production afloat. And so, again, it, it created this vicious cycle where they obviously recognized the problem in a socialist country of having a three-tiered consumer society. 
And people were livid about it, especially those people, as you can imagine, who were limited largely to the HO brands, you know, where you had the lowest quality and the least selection, uh, you know, were livid about this because a lot of them are also retired people, older people who had spent all of their lives working for a socialist government. Uh, and they were frustrated uh, as as heck that, uh, you know, after 30, 40 years, um, they were sort of being relegated to, uh, you know, the lowest uh, level of, of, of standard of living in, the, in, in East Germany. And so this, this created a whole bunch of tensions and unresolved uh, problems that uh, really the East German government never, never was able to figure out and resolve. Well, and it also goes against the socialist promise of equality, right? You work hard and everyone Completely. works you know, according to their abilities and we all enjoy the fruits of our collective labor. Um, and of course, those hierarchies were there from the onset, right? I mean, you had members of the nomenklatura and higher level officials enjoying this, these privileges. But yeah, I mean, it undermines the whole raison d'etre for for the system essentially yes and 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 it becomes you know and i you know it, it, it's, it's fascinating when you read some of the letters that are being sent um you know to the authorities because you know there was actually a petition system in east germany that was sort of legally established which was again a way for the east german government to keep you know soft taps on the mood of the population and, and, you know, and you read some of these letters by the late 80s and you can really see the frustration of people saying, you know, what are we supposed to tell our kids? You know, they, they, we've told them, you know, if we all stick together and do this, you know, there will be a better future for all of us. And, and here we are, you know, uh, we are we can't even afford some of the, you know, some some sort of basic luxury items uh you, you know or or ice cream from the west or western coffee that that usually tasted better and, and and so you know it's not only that you know the east german government or the economy is, is stagnating but in many ways it's sliding uh backwards because you know the pressure to a repay its debt and then also to buy needed um you know, again, products and machinery from um, from from Western companies, uh, whether that be televisions or, you know, especially when the electronics industry and the computer industry takes off in the eighties, uh, the problems multiply. You know, manifold uh, during that era. Right, and that was actually going to be a part of my next question, and I'm just going to combine these two. So, mm. you know, of course, one of the ironies associated with trying to prop up. Uh, the GDR, right, to sustain some type of legitimacy was borrowing from the West, be it to support film, be it to support consumption practices, be it to support, you know, the continued modernization of industry. So maybe we can talk a little bit about why it collapses. And then maybe you can address to what degree is this uh, a story about the GDR? And to what degree is this a story about the Eastern Bloc? Yeah, and and maybe starting with the with the with the last one first. I mean, I believe that um, you know I think almost everything I talk about in in the book, and I, I of course I say so in the introduction, other parts of the of the of the narrative, I think applies to some degree to Eastern Europe. You know, I mean, whether you talk about the development of a consumer consumer socialism. Uh, the increased import of Western culture and products, um, 
you know, the impact of the 1960s spirit and culture on, on especially young people. And then as we talked, more, you know, just, just a moment ago, um, you know, the, the, the gradual but obvious hypocrisy and undermining of the socialist vision and culture. I mean, this is, I think this is really happening in all of Eastern Europe, including, you know, the Soviet Union. Uh, and, um, you know, it, it, it definitely leads to a sense of frustration, um, resignation, whatever you call it. I mean, in, in East Germany, you know, you have these jokes circulating by the mid-80s, like uh, example is, uh, you know, why are we so good in bobsledding, you know, which they were at the Olympics. And the answer is, well, you know, we have home home field advantage, you know, a wall to the left, a wall to the right, and downhill at full speed, you know. Um, that Those kinds of jokes were circulating, so people knew what was happening. Uh, but I do think that East Germany still, uh, and that, of course, would have to be borne out by other studies in other countries, but I think that East Germany might have still been more unique and everything we're talking out about was more pronounced in East Germany because it was so close to West Germany and East Germans always compared themselves to West Germany, not to other East European countries. And so, you know, everything we're talking about, I think, is certainly present in East European countries, but it is amplified manifold in, in East Germany. And so it, it's, it's, I think... Um, uh, definitely, that's why I sort of make that argument that that these developments were were absolutely essential and at the core, you know, and, and not to take away from the political opposition and the political movements of of the eighties, uh, but I think this all pay really paved the way for people to a be willing and b be um, you know sort of eager to participate in this because the. The sense that this was that, that, that there was no future uh, in the system was becoming, I think, more uh, more pronounced. So, and, and now, if I got your first part, the first part of your question and, and this answer. Well, it was related basically to why you have a collapse, right? So, why the GDR collapses, and you know, related to this uh, propping up of consumerism of industry through uh, Western loans, etc. Yeah, and I think so. We already, you know, we talked about them. I, I, I think, you know, it's it, it, you know, an event like you know the fall of the Berlin Wall or the, you know, really, really the, the the fall of of East East European communist countries, you know, you can never, of course, reduce it to one aspect. And I'm I'm certainly not trying to say that the cultural or consumption policies, you know, were the uh, only or even the main, well certainly one of the main reasons. I mean, there is no monocausal explanation, of course, and it, it really, you have to take together all of these various aspects, uh, you know, the financial situation, uh, the international situation, you know, and, 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 and culture and consumer politics, I think, really play a, a, a fundamental role in it. But I, but I think also at the core, and, and especially, if, again, for young people, was just... Uh, this, literally the the strangulation of of artistic expression and, and creativity um you know the lack of cultural freedoms i mean the you know we talk about these cultures as niche societies where everybody's sort of retreated into private life and you know tried to make life as 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 good as they could in the in the circle of 
you know, friends and families. And, and that sort of became really where people lived their, their authentic and meaningful lives. But I think even that became increasingly difficult. And of course, in in the case of East Germany, I mean, the, the, the call, I mean, the, the applications to leave the countries just skyrocketed and, and the demand to, um, you know, to open up became ever more powerful. Um, you know, so it, it really is this, um, you know, this mixture of, of politics, economics and culture, I think, and the interplay between those, those uh, areas that, um, you know, that, that brought the, the regimes down. Well, and as you also say, the freedom of movement, right, which is essential in you, why you have these East Germans flocking to the embassy in Prague trying to get out, right? (laughs) Right. I'd like to move on to your epilogue now, and you examine the emergence uh, after 1989, so in the 90s, of Ostalgi, and you discuss uh, types, different types of memory cultures, so these strands of Ostalgi that emerged in the former East. Can you discuss those and also... Um, maybe discuss uh, in which way they uh, relate to the age of the individual. So how does generation matter in understanding Ostalgi? Mm. Yeah, great question. You know, of course, it's first we need to remember that, you know, of course, the moment when the wall fell was this iconic moment. I think everybody remembers the pictures of people, you know, sledgehammering away at the wall, of dancing on the walls, of you know, celebrating East and West. Uh, and, and you know, I, I think it's important to remember that, uh, you know, that this this moment of we are one people, you know, the chorus uh, that, that sort of resonated through through Germany, uh, you know, was very real. I mean, there's, this was, of course, a moment of elation and, and un, unimaginable joy uh, uh, on, on, on many parts, you know, both East and West. But it's also true, uh, you know, that that moment of celebration quickly faded and a more somber and sober, uh, you know, realization emerged, which, uh, you know, in the East was, well, you know, capitalism maybe looks better on television than in real life, uh, was one of the sort of maybe quick realizations because, you know, it, 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 uh, it was a lot of things were not as they looked. Uh, and the West wasn't as golden as it appeared uh, in the media, um, uh, and and there would be a definite sort of sobering up uh, happening uh, along those lines, um, it, you know. And on the Western end, uh, it was certainly in the part of Germany there was the sticker shock um, because you know people began to realize this is going to cost money, and of course the government very quickly uh, imposed an extra tax, income tax, to sort of fund the enterprise of really trying to bring these, to fuse these two parts together and and rebuild some of the infrastructure in, in the East. Uh, so, and, and then and then the other part, of course, that was especially in, the, in, in East Germany very hurtful is that the East, East Germany was only talked about as a, as a second dictatorship, you know, um, it was, you know, compared to Hitler Germany and and, and put on the same sort of level. Uh, and, and East Germans felt befuddled that this was what, how they were compared, uh, especially since, you know, they had sort of identified themselves as the, um, as the, the, the counter to that. Um, but even the comparison just didn't seem to match. And so all of that brought increasing 
I think frustration on both sides, alienation. Um, and, you know, uh, it, it's fair to say a lot of people kept kept talking that the physical maybe Berlin Wall had fallen, but the wall in the heads of people was still very much standing. And so, you know, in the next few years, this process would lead to an alienation between the two sides, you know, and as you say, ostalgie, which is sort of the nostalgic memory of the former East, uh, did become part of some uh, aspects of East German life. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's important for us to recognize that this in many ways was um, quite natural, just the same way that we, we might have, you know, 70s parties in in in, in the U.S. Or, or whatever, you know, dressed like in the 80s. Um, you know, East Germans would sort of begin to have these parties where they would say, let's let's dress up as we used to do, like, you know, 10 years ago and, and, and things like that. And so there was this movement to at least sort of recapture some of that familiarity, especially as the new Germany and the West uh, that seemed familiar over television uh, was really quite alienating uh, to many in real life. And and uh, part of that, of course, is that I think I read one statistic by um, by the mid-1990s in, East, in the East German part of, of Germany. Uh, I think only 30% of people were still in the jobs they held like five years earlier uh, or before the wall came down. So what we're talking about here is a massive, uh, you know, economic dislocation. Many people lost their jobs, um, you know, joblessness, which was pretty much unknown in socialism, became commonplace. Hundreds of thousands of East Germans uh, without a job. And it was very... Um, it was very humiliating. And, you know, that's where generations, again, come into play. You know, if you were somebody, let's say, in your, you know, in your 50s, uh, when the wall came down and you had worked in a, in a, in a certain factory of work uh, that was then declared completely uh, irrelevant and inefficient uh, by the West German government and you were out of a job overnight, you know, what do you do uh, if you're, you know, 52 or 55 and you're supposed to, you know, start something else. Uh, obviously, there were retraining programs, but many of them fell flat. So, uh, you know, so again, age mattered here quite a bit. Uh, and certainly uh, younger people, of course, if you were in your 20s when the wall fell. Uh, and, you know, I actually have um, people in my family who fall into that category. You know, it was a lot easier to, to transition uh, into maybe a new life than it would be if you were, you know, again, maybe around 50 or, or, or even slightly older. Uh, and so the responses was, were quite different, you know. I mean, nostalgia, I think, was fairly widespread, even among young people, you know, and, and sometimes fun and, um, you know, sort of recapturing some of that old life and reclaiming some of the cultural competency which people were sort of lacking or felt they were lacking in the new system. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Age had a had a big part to play in how people responded. Just to to maybe say this and make it clear, I mean, uh, all through the '90s and into the, I think even today, a solid majority, usually in the '60s, of East East Germans are very happy with how things turned out and believe that their life has has improved. But there is a very strong minority 
that feels that things have not gone well at all and actually who feel that they were much better off under a socialist government than in the new you know, Berlin Republic uh, that they found themselves in. Yeah, I mean, I research socialist and post-socialist Romania, so I found similar sentiments among people and in certain cases generationally inflected, but mm-hmm. I don't even really like the term nostalgia because people aren't really nostalgic you know, for Honecker, for uh, the the socialist system, but they're nostalgic right. for the certainty mm-hmm. that they associated with their life at that time, right? There was no unemployment. Everyone was employed. You had a welfare state, maybe, um, you know, it wasn't exactly on par with the West German one. Right. But I mean, for women, for example, it was actually more supportive of a working mother than the West German welfare state was. And so there were certain parts of it that were of greater value to individuals. And also you know, of course, they lose their country because they're integrated into West Germany, and then it becomes Germany, right? Mm. And this idea that they are somehow second-class citizens, right? That they Very that their true. their their life experiences don't matter, that they don't count, they're being invalidated as a human being, essentially. I, I think that's very true. You know, I mean, sort of, it. You know, it's it's good for a joke, you know, but it's not good for a, a real serious conversation, right? And. And so I, I think you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a daily sort of, uh, you know, invalidation of, of you and what you did and who you were and what you contributed. And, uh, you know, and, 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 and you know, the, the, the idea, of course, of the, the whining, whining East Germans became sort of a common uh, trope in, in, in West German sort of culture, you know, that these people are, you know, now they finally got what they, you know, wanted, the wall is down and they're still not happy and they can never be placed and, and sort of that. And and, and really, uh, you know, and then East Germans, of course, countered that with the stereotype of the, the arrogant West German know-it-all, you know. Uh, but but so that those kinds of, uh, you know, hostile lines were drawn uh, in, in many quarters but I agree with you that the the invalidation of the experiences and the fact that really, in many ways, too, West Germans were just not not very interested in in learning about it, hearing about it. You know, they had their preconceived notions about what it was like, you know, and that it was all pretty worthless anyway. Uh, and and so there wasn't much place to share it in a way that, as you say, you know, is, is sort of you know validating and reaffirming and. And I think the, this counter memory of nostalgia is, is how I like to think about it too, uh, is, is sort of a way to really, you know, preserve that meaning of your life and and the relationships you build and uh, you know the experiences you had and, um, and and you know not to deny the, the the dictatorial aspects of the regimes and the real crimes that were committed, but also to recognize that they were normalcy and 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 people had meaningful relationships and lives uh, that matter to them. It was almost as if we needed like uh, group therapy, right? (laughs) Transition (laughs) group therapists uh, to help people along and for some cross-cultural understanding. Yes. Okay. Well, we have run out of time. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. I really enjoyed the book and I'm looking forward to assigning it in class. I know my students will love it. So, Well, thank you. um, Thank you for writing it. (laughs) I, I had um, a great time last... writing it. Yes, so I, I I'm I'm, I'm, I'm sure. glad you found this it, it very uh, intriguing and interesting. Well, I'm a cultural historian also, so <laughs> I guess uh, you know I appreciated that as well. 
My last question is uh, about your current uh, research. So what are you currently working on? Yeah. Uh, so the next, uh, the project that I'm uh, in the very early stages of is, is actually so follows just what we talked about. I'm, I'm um, you know, very interested in a nutshell to, sh- to, to look at, you know, how East Germans and East Germany were portrayed in, in popular German television programs in the 1990s. So to actually look at, you know, what kind of uh, prejudices, stereotypes were carried over from, the, from maybe the, the communist uh, time period, how were they imagined in, in especially these, you know, very popular fictional television series, how were they positioned in relation to, you know, West Germans and maybe other um, uh, uh, groups in, in, in Germany uh, and or were they just sort of ignored and, and not even integrated at all? You know, so, so I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in, in that portrayal, the media portrayal of that. Uh, and of course, the East German response also to some of these media portrayals, but then ultimately also, of course, to make the connection again to politics and say, and trying to understand, you know, how, how did this sort of, um, this portrayal really uh, sort of influence post-unification politics, because the truth of the matter is most West Germans did not travel to East Germany. Most of, I think most West Germans perhaps still haven't been to East German part of the country, you know, so a lot of that, again, is either relayed by people who come to them or by media portrayals. And especially in the 1990s, I I think this was a very critical time period where some of these, um, some of these portrayals were sort of created revised, you know, anchored into the psyche and into the, into the sort of discourse uh, about East Germans and East Germany, and no doubt had also an influence on the politics of this time. Yeah, I'm glad that scholars are going back to the 1990s and looking at this period of transition, because I, I feel like that's now become an area of focus and yes. this, what's, what's happening during these early years. So I, I look forward to reading the research that comes out of this project and Uh, Again, thank you for taking the time to speak with me, and uh, I wish you all the best. Thank you. Same to you. It was my pleasure.